Christians, you did awesome. I just feel so bad for seeing all of these mothers in these beautiful spring dresses and outfits and the weather is not cooperating. Can we just pray one more time, Lord, bring the sun back? <laughs> well, you came to church and the S-O-N sun is always shining here, right? The S-O-N sun, the Son of God. We're in a sermon series on the book of Matthew, and I thought I would honor the mothers today with continuing that, and I think I might be able to tie it in a little bit towards the end. Somebody say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Mothers need to come to Jesus, and all of us need to come to Jesus. So by the end of this message, hopefully there will be something special for mothers. But we're going to go verse by verse through chapter 11. We're going to learn a little bit here about the heart that John the Baptist had, and it may encourage some of you in times of difficulty. So let's look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. After Jesus had, and finished, had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, we know that the gospel of Matthew started with John the Baptist preaching and doing an amazing job of preparing the way for Jesus. He actually calls out who Jesus is. He says, this is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. That's the book of John. And in Matthew, he says, this is the one I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. But what has happened now in chapter 11 from chapter 3 where he's questioning, is this really the Messiah? What had happened was he got arrested for calling out a political leader named King Herod for having an adulterous affair with his brother's wife. Everybody go, ugh. No, you don't want your sister-in-law. Leave your sister-in-law alone. Amen? Now, I love my sister-in-law. She's beautiful and all of that. Uh, but you just leave that alone. That's not for you, man. Okay? So what happened was this man had an affair with his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist called it out rightfully and was put into prison. We'll learn about that later and how that sister-in-law actually leads to him being beheaded by having her daughter dance dirty before the king. The Bible's real, y'all, just to let you know. The Bible's been here before Maury Povich and stuff like that, okay? Before Jerry Springer, there was the Bible. The Bible's very clear about sin and people wiling out, Okay. So we see here that John's in prison. We just get a taste of the story. We'll get more of it later as we hear about his death. But what we now see is that he's dealing with doubt. He's in prison, more than likely a dungeon. He's probably being very malnourished, mistreated, possibly beaten. We know that he's at the edge of death, and death eventually will come. And now he has doubt. And the doubt is, is Jesus who I thought he once was? Now remember, he thought and believed and preached that Jesus was the Messiah. And now, as his visitors, uh, as his visitors, as his disciples came to visit him, have you ever heard the word visit and disciple combined into one word? By the way, I get paid to do this for a living. I can't believe I came up with that. Visitors. Hashtag visitals. So he had his disciples come and visit him. And when they came and visited him, he's like, hey, guys, will you check back on Jesus for me? Because I'm kind of in a place of doubt right now about him. Now, let's talk about doubt because doubts are real. Doubts come to everybody. If doubts can come to John the Baptist, doubts can come to you. Doubts have come to me. There are two kinds of doubts that we will face in life when it comes to God. Emotional doubts, and those have to do with how we feel in life, and we doubt God because of our feelings. And then there are what we would call emotion, uh, excuse me, theological or mental doubts. What these are are doubts when you study and you come up with conflict or logic and you think maybe there's a contradiction and you're really in a doubting place because it doesn't make sense. Two kinds of doubts, emotional and mental or emotional and theological. Let's talk about emotional. An emotional doubt could come to you 
if you lost somebody you loved and you thought you were supposed to have them around in your life for a lot longer, that emotion can make you question whether or not God's real, whether or not God has a plan for your life, whether or not God keeps his promises. You may not have any argument or anything in the Bible to point to and say, this doesn't make sense, but just on the inside, it doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel right. If God was a good God, why would he allow me to go through this? I don't feel good. It hurts. And doesn't God care about our hurts? And see, the thing about emotional doubt is it's not answered with theological answers. We can give them to you. They'll be helpful at some point. But the brokenhearted need the heart healed before they can hear it with their mind. And so what we have to do during the time when we face it or you're facing it or someone you love is facing it is we have to come around them and show them the love of God. It's almost like at this point, John the Baptist, because we don't know, by the way, if it's emotional or theological, and sometimes it could be both. We don't know what he's going through, but it's almost like he just wanted Jesus to come in the room, put his arm around him and go, hey, man, I got you, buddy. You're not alone in here. You might feel like you're alone, and you might think that I don't care about you because I haven't come to visit you, but they'll put me in here if I come to visit you. I got to fulfill my plan, and guess what? They're going to kill me too, you know? But what, what he wanted was emotional comfort if he was going through that. And what we're going through, when we're going through emotional doubt, we need emotional comfort. And once again, we still bring the Word of God, but we try to bring the Word of God in the place where emotion is. Now, just remember this. Your emotions and your feelings are not necessarily facts, though. So when we feel emotional towards something, it doesn't now make it true. And so during that time, we need to take a step back and begin to realize, I'm feeling this way, but that doesn't mean it's true. We don't want to suppress the feelings and say, well, the feelings can't be real. No, feelings are real, and they need to be felt. But at the same time, that doesn't need, mean we validate them and put them on the same level of truth. Let me give you a couple helpful hints if you're ever facing emotional doubt. Let people know, number one. Let people know. Let people pray for you. Let people encourage you. And then step back and look at God on the good days. And remember, he hasn't changed just because you're having a bad day. And so a couple ways to think about this in big picture is someone in this room has already lost a loved one and they're still serving God. So that means if you've lost a loved one and that bad day has come to you, you'll make it through like them. Another thing to remember is that whatever you're facing right now will not last forever. It won't. Now, some people may say, I've been depressed for a long time, Pastor. It feels like it's going to last forever. Well, that's what we're going to help you, good pastors, good counselors. It doesn't have to last forever. And when you follow a path of healing, when you humble yourself and say, I get it. My feelings are not facts. Somebody help me see this better and differently. Like John the Baptist is reaching out to his disciples to get more information or to get a hug or whatever he needs. We trust the process. And so I could talk about going through emotional doubt. I didn't have any theological doubt, but about six years ago, I was at my heaviest. I think I had my fourth child or fifth child. I think it was four. My wife was pregnant with the fifth. And just emotionally, as a man, my body was changing. I didn't have the same energy level that I used to have. And I still feel like I have a lot of energy, you know, but I didn't have that same kind of energy. And I just felt emotionally tired. I felt emotionally, and it's probably because I was also about 80 pounds overweight. It used to be close to 300 pounds, by the way, if you didn't know that. So if you ever go back into our archives and look back at the preaching, you'll see healthy Jesus, plump, I mean, plump Jesus, Joe. You'll see plump Joe. I've always said I wanted to see a play with a healthy big Jesus, you know, um, but that's where I got confused there. You'll see me preaching, and you'll see me with, you know, some rolls under my, my, my chin. You'll see me with a big belly and all of those things, and Jesus still loved me. There was just more to love. Amen. 
and my wife still loves me. And, and, there was, and, and some people are very real as I share this story because I was sharing this story one time to a family friend uh, at a family gathering, and the family set friend saw this old picture of me, you know, the before and after, and then she looked at my wife. She literally looked at my wife, and she said, I don't know how you loved him when he was like that. Some people are very real. Some people are very real. And I'm like, thank God God did not give me as, 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 as a wife, you know, for me to have you as my wife. Because I couldn't take that. That would hurt my feelings, you know. I get big and you don't love me no more, okay. But I was just emotional. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, is this all serving God is going to be? Now, those were just passing thoughts. So I want to be very honest with you. It's not like I had a code red situation. But I had never had those passing thoughts of emotion going through me. And so the elders that were around me at the time, and I talked to them, and I said, man, I had some of these doubts, and they felt discouraging. But each day I felt those doubts. I gave them to Jesus. I talked to my wife, and I let the Lord heal me from any kind of thing that would go on beyond that. And so sometimes you got to catch your doubts before they run away. And another way of looking at it is doubt your doubts. You know, you might think to yourself during that emotional time, hey, I wonder if God loves me. I wonder if God loves me. I'm doubting God's love. You need to stop and go, oh, I doubt that. God does love me. I'm going to doubt my doubts today. Look at your neighbor and say, doubt your doubts. Okay, so those are emotional doubts. What about theological doubts? And it seems like John has more towards the theological doubts. I just say that because the question that he asked gets a specific answer. So it seems like Jesus is not just giving them a hug saying, hey, dude, you're going to be all right. Don't be scared here. Uh, Jesus actually gives them a very theological answer. So let's look at verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So he gives him this theological answer. He gives him the depth of Isaiah chapter 61, which we don't have time to get into today, which Jesus specifically is fulfilling. And Luke's gospel, Luke talks about Jesus reading that passage, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to basically do everything right there. And so what he's saying back to the theological doubts of John the Baptist is, I am who God said I am. Now, why would John be doubting that? Because the Jewish people at this time believed in a Messiah that would come and do these things, yes, but would also be a conquering king like David. So now the plan's a little bit off. John the Baptist thought he was going to be riding in with the Messiah into Jerusalem to conquer the Roman Empire that had taken it over, but instead, now John's in jail, and John knows he's about ready to die. And he eventually does die. And so he's freaking out a little bit. He's like, hold on here, man. I thought the Messiah was going to do all of these things. Why isn't he doing that? Why is he abandoning me here? Aren't we supposed to be seeing the war and the judgment and the Armageddon? And what Jesus does here is simply divides his comings into two separate comings with two different purposes. The Jews combined them into one. In the first coming, they thought Jesus was going to heal and Jesus was going to destroy. Jesus was going to preach and Jesus was going to judge. They thought the Messiah was going to do it all at once. But Jesus was showing him that there's a first part in his first coming and then eventually there's going to be a second part with the second coming. The first coming is for Jesus to do all of these wonderful miracles, to preach and teach, die on a cross for our sins, resurrect, give the church the gospel so that the gospel could go forth to the whole world, and then the end would come with judgment and all of those things, and now it wouldn't just be Jews and a few people in Jerusalem, but would it, be, it would be billions of us from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and can I hear all my non-Jewish people say amen to that? Amen. So aren't you happy the story didn't end 2,000 years ago with a handful of Jewish people? And so I think about theological doubt as something that maybe you just don't understand. It doesn't mean that the Bible is contradicting itself. It's just maybe you don't understand the Bible. You see, theological doubt, I believe, is always resolved with true biblical study. 
They just had it confused. It's not that it was wrong. It's not that uh, the Bible said something wrong and, and now they could point to it and go, this is the, you know, not the way it's supposed to be. No, they were wrong. And so what do we see with theological doubt? Somebody goes, uh-uh, pastor, I have a question of this thing in the Bible. Is the Bible wrong or is it their understanding of the Bible wrong? What I have found out over 20 years of studying the scripture, dealing with people with theological doubt, it is never the Bible is wrong. I've never seen it proven wrong. And and trust me, I have listened to the best of the best try to come against Christian theology. I've listened to other religions like Islam and so forth attack the Bible. I've listened to atheists try to put down the Bible. I've watched the history shows just like you. Uh, Did Jesus exist and all of these things? It's never that way. Honestly, when you look at the Bible, you treat it as a history book, and you begin to evaluate it, and you test it, It comes back true every time. Let me just give you one example, just one example. They thought that the Gospels, all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written after 70 A.D. Like there's just no way they could have been written before 70 A.D. The reason is, is because three of those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention Jesus giving a prophecy about the destruction of the Jewish temple. And so they said to themselves, of course nobody can know the future. We don't believe in miracles. This had to be written after the fact. Now the disciples are putting it in the Bible to say, look at our Jesus. He predicted this, and now no one can prove it otherwise. This was popular in the early 1900s. It's not popular anymore. You want to know why? Because archaeology has proved that our Gospels were from around the 40s and 50s and 60s. Even the oldest Gospel, John, they say could possibly be written at 90 AD, but some put it much earlier than that. But the three major Gospels that mention the destruction of the temple all come 10, 20, 30 years beforehand. They used to think to themselves, that's impossible. How could that be true? But archaeology proved it to be true, that our Jesus was able to do these kinds of things, predict the future. And so let's go back to John the Baptist. He's in prison now. He's doubting. And we don't know whether it's emotional or theological, maybe a combination of both. And then Jesus gives him this proclamation of what he is doing and says, go back and tell him. And let me just end with this. Can I get everybody's attention? Can I get everybody's attention? The best thing you can do in your doubts, whether it's emotional or theological, is trust what God is doing in others' lives when you don't see it in your own life. You may not always see a miracle, but listen to those who are having the miracles. Don't become so bitter that you think miracles aren't happening because they're not happening around you. Listen to what others are saying. Maybe you have theological questions that haven't been answered yet. Don't give up on God. Trust those around you who have begun to get their questions answered. Because in the middle of your doubt, if it's emotional or theological, you'll have nothing good coming out of just throwing it all away. Hold on and wait for the answers to come. And trust that others are finding those answers even if you haven't yet. And so here's what I did in my emotional doubt. I let God, you know, pour his love on me. I spent time with him, prayed, worshiped, and all those things. But I began to read stories about pastors who went through similar times that I went through. And I began to realize I felt like John the Baptist. I'm here in Chicago going, man, it's been this long. I still haven't seen all of these thousands of people come to Jesus yet. What am I supposed to do? And so I began to send out my questions, as it were, to John Wesley. And John Wesley was a famous preacher of the past. And I could just hear John Wesley coming back through his journals going, God was faithful to me, Joe. Be patient. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. The gospel is being preached. And I began to think about like Carlos and Acondia in Argentina who filled the stadiums there, the soccer stadiums during the 90s and the revival there. And Steve Hill and these other people of our modern times. Because as I sent out my emotional, you know, feelings to the Lord, he sent me back the testimony of pastors who have seen God in his goodness. And see, John the Baptist then had to trust them. 
because John the Baptist didn't see what was going on. He's in that deep, dark dungeon. And so can I just ask you, whether it's emotional, whether it's theological, trust God and his people. Your healing is coming. Your answers are coming. And it's going to come through the testimonies and the the church of Jesus Christ praying for you, reaching out to you, teaching you. And you will get over those doubts. And one day, you'll be from the outside looking into someone going, hey, I know what it's like to be there. We may not know what everyone's pain feels like. I get that. I don't want to be flipping on that. But when people are in despair or doubt and be like, hey, I got good news for you. It's not all dark and gloomy. Not everything is like that. There is a sun shining out there. Jesus is walking on the water, man. It's going down out here. Trust me, and it's coming to you. Your blessing is coming. Your healing is coming. Your answers to prayer are coming. And in this sense... I truly believe that John the Baptist can now face his martyrdom with courage. Because for him, that was the greatest thing he could do. He had already said, I must decrease, that he must increase. He had no problem dying for his Messiah. He just wanted to make sure it was the right person to die for. Amen. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. That's powerful. Verse 7. Now Jesus begins to talk about John the Baptist, and I love it because this gives us a taste of what I think he'll say about us on Judgment Day because each one of us will give an account, and Jesus will talk about us and how he's seen us in this world. Here he talks about John the Baptist. He says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. The Bible is so clear that John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now look at verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Let's just pause right there before I finish the rest of that verse. Isn't that amazing? John the Baptist was so faithful to Jesus that Jesus says there was no one greater of women that has been born than John the Baptist. Why is that? Because John the Baptist got to see Jesus in person and choose to submit to Jesus, not do it his way, do it Jesus' way, even unto death. And why would that be hard? Because the Jewish leaders were doing the exact opposite due to pride. You see, those who have a lot of authority and, and have a lot of privilege, it's hard for them to give that up. It's, it's easy for you to take out the garbage here at church when you're a janitor on your job, okay? But if you're the owner of your company and then you come here and the church asks you to take out the garbage, you might get a little bit offended. You get what I'm saying? If you're already a house cleaner on your job, you might not have a problem cleaning the house of God. But if you're the manager on your job and you tell everyone to clean the houses or clean the company, you might have a problem when God asks you in the house of God to clean the house. Are you listening? And you see, when you're in charge, it's easy to give people orders. It's hard for you to step down from that place of authority and to do the menial tasks of a servant. I even see that as myself, as a pastor. You know, we have so many people that are willing to help and to clean, just as that example. And and, and sometimes I'm coming in from the parking lot and it doesn't look right. It's very easy for me to say, brother, can you please come and pick that up? And and, and that may be the best thing to do because I have a meeting and I have to do things and that person's there to help and that's great. But sometimes God says, hey, you're not too busy, Mr. Big uh, Britches. Why don't you stop and pick it up? And oftentimes when I stop and I pick up that piece of garbage and I'm walking it to the garbage can, I'm reminded that I'm never greater than that. I can have a position, but my position doesn't make me great. Your position doesn't make you great. What makes you great is who you are here. That's why you could be fired from that highest position, start all over again, and you would go right back to that position. But there's some people that don't have any uh, integrity to keep a position like that. 
You see, those who are leaders are going to remain leaders no matter what situation they're in. And so I think John's great humility, even beyond Moses, this is, this is a big deal, born of women. Moses was born of a woman. He's even considered greater than Moses, who was at that time to be considered the meekest man that walked the earth. I believe it's because he never tried to hold on to Jesus' coattails to get something out of it. It would have been so tempting for him, as he's the one preparing the way for Jesus, to kind of like make Jesus his sidekick or try to be Jesus' sidekick, but he was willing to lose it all just for the fact of Jesus coming forward. I think we have to understand how great humility is. But now watch this. No matter how awesome he is, look at what it says. From born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm greater than John the Baptist. Oh, I know it sounds prideful. I know it sounds like you cocky right now. But Jesus gave you permission to say it. Look at your other neighbor and say, I'm better than John the Baptist. Oh, man, that feels wrong. How can I say I'm better than John the Baptist? How can I say I'm greater than John the Baptist? Can I tell you? Jesus said, in the kingdom of God, we get the Holy Spirit to come live in us to have an intimate relationship. We're not better in the sense of being more humble. Some of us don't have the humility of John the Baptist, but we are better off than this great man of God ever was because there are two distinct covenants in the Bible. One is old, one is new. And Jesus is very clear that the new is better than the old. That the new is so much better than the old that even the least in the new are better than the best of the old. Isn't that awesome? Now think about that because some of you think it's the other way around. Man, I wish I was John the Baptist, got to see Jesus at the baptism, hear the Father talk, see the dove come down. I would never doubt, you know, his, his, his Messiahship. No, John the Baptist saw all of that and he still doubted. You might say, oh, man, I wish I could be Moses or at least around the time of Moses, seeing the Red Sea part, manna every day. I like the way Jared said it. It's like God gave him frosted flakes every morning because it said the manna was a little sweet and crispy, you know, so they got their frosted flakes. Just go to the calf, get a little bit of milk, put it in there. I love that. But listen, the Bible says, no, 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 y'all got it twisted. If you look at John the Baptist and Moses as the greatest in the Old Covenant, like they reach, let's say we're talking like a video game. Let's say they reach level 10. The Bible says in the kingdom of God, even the least are greater than them because they start at level 20. Why do we get that benefit? Is it because we are intrinsically better than John the Baptist? No, no, no. John the Baptist was a human born into sin just like us. And like I said, John the Baptist's character might have been better than some of your character here. So it's not something you're earning or deserving that you get this upgrade where these gentlemen didn't or men and women of God didn't. The difference is Jesus. And Jesus cuts those two covenants and then brings a division between them and says, this is old, this is new, come out of the old and into the new. That's why he literally looks at John the Baptist, who's, uh, excuse me, uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and says to him, unless you are born again, you're not even getting in the kingdom of heaven. And that was a great Jewish man, because the born again experience was a new covenant experience that Jesus wanted to give us via the Holy Spirit. And so today, I want everyone to get this. You have a relationship with the Father via Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit in the new covenant that is greater than anything they had in the Old Testament. So that's why today, if you reject him, there will be no excuse for you. You have been given much, now much is required of you. 
We are not to use the excuse, I didn't have any, uh, enough reasons to believe or enough power to resist sin or, you know, temptation was so tempting. The Bible says we have the entire word of God. They didn't have the entire word of God. We have both covenants. We have the Holy Spirit. They would have the Holy Spirit come on them and off them. We have the Holy Spirit indwell us. They did not have regeneration of their soul. They had to wait till they died until their soul was transformed. Our souls have been saved and transformed now, hallelujah, and there was only a few that had spiritual gifts, and they were limiting their gifts, and now the Bible says because of the day of Pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we have access to all nine of the spiritual gifts. So just imagine what John the Baptist would do with that upgrade. Amen. He would give us all a run for his money, a run for our money. So we're not to look down on him because of that. But Jesus was very clear when he says, "You are greater. You are better. You are in a better position than John the Baptist, Moses, and Elijah, and all of them combined. Even the least among us are in a greater position than them." So what are you going to do with that great position Jesus Christ has given you? Are you going to take it for granted? Are you just going to say, oh, well, you know, pastor said all that stuff, but that's not a big deal. I'm still tired. I don't feel like coming to church on Sunday. No, we should now go further than these men have ever gone. They were the foundation that we stand on. Now that we're standing on their shoulders, we should be able to experience the things that God has promised us. That's why Jesus said, when I go to the Father, you can ask all things in my name. You'll do what I've been doing, even greater works than these. And we talked about that. It's not greater than raising the dead. It's not like there's another level to raising the dead. Like I said, like, are we going to be like Pokemon and shoot out fire, then raise the dead, and that's greater than Jesus? No, but we're going to be greater in number, better in representation, because instead of there just being one Jesus upon the earth, there's going to be hundreds of millions of us upon the earth. Even he said that the church will be better, greater than I did in works. But once again, who gives us the power to do those works? Jesus, y'all don't believe me he said that? Go to the book of John. Man, come on, y'all look at it. When the Bible says you're going to be better and greater than Jesus, you're like, you're thinking I'm blaspheming now. <laughs> Nobody can be better than greater than Jesus, pastor. Oh, look at your neighbor and say, pastor's got to preach now. <laughs> Go to John. See, this is the thing. This is the thing. I feel like so often we undermine what Jesus actually came to do. Go to John chapter 14, verse 12. Why is it we don't understand that the purpose of Jesus was to make a bunch of people like Jesus? Do you not understand that? You're supposed to be like Jesus now. The purpose of Jesus was not for him to be a one-off and go back to heaven and no one else be like him. We're all supposed to be like him. Amen? I know I got some of you getting this, but I want everybody to get this. This is Jesus talking. Red letters. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do uh, the works that I have been doing. They will do even what? Greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So did you know you're supposed to do greater works than Jesus? That shouldn't be blasphemy to you. Trust me, I honor the Lord. I don't even like OMG on Facebook or a text, okay? I am not going to blaspheme my Lord and Savior here. He told us this. He said, guys, you're going to do greater. You're going to do better. Better, greater, same idea. What it means is Jesus never went to India. Now missionaries will go to India. Jesus never went to China. Now you're going to go to China. But technically, we know Matthew 28 ends with him being with us, sending us to China with the power of the Holy Spirit. So of course he gets the glory for it. But he's the one telling you, you are to be responsible now to believe for greater and better. Like Jesus' church we have a better representation of Jesus' church now than he did upon the earth because he started it and he left. The Bible says there would be every nation, tribe, and tongue. This church has more nations, tribes, and tongues than the church that Jesus pastored. It's better and greater in that way, but he's here still pastoring. You get my point, right? But we need to be responsible to do that, and he wants it. Just like a father would say, I want you to do better and greater than me in this job, in this business that you're in, or your education. Now, of course, we know we get it all from Jesus ultimately, and he's all-knowing and all-powerful, but we ought not to minimize the greater, the better, 
the next level because that's honestly what he's here to do is to make us like him. One more scripture. Go to Romans chapter 8 just so you can see this. Uh, go to the other place. Keep that right there. Just click up there to the other NIV. Thank you. And there you go. Put Romans chapter 8. Let's say verse 36. And then if you click those Greek symbols right there, we'll get the, uh, the Greek to come off the screen. Yeah, click the, the Greek right up there towards the top. There you go. Now, uh, 8.35. Okay, go up a little bit. Let's go up to the end of chapter 8. Let's keep going here. There you go. There you go. Let's go. Let's just figure it out here. You guys like it when I do that. Okay, stop right there. Here we go. There we go. Just a little bit more. Look at pastor's hands. Thank you. Okay, here we go. As we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. How many have heard this scripture before? Amen. Who have been called according to his purpose. And if you just move the mouse to the side. Thank you. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. Let's say it again. To be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That he, talking about Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus wants to make you his brother or sister by you participating in the divine nature. John the Baptist never had that. This is better. This is better. Does everybody get that? The book of Hebrews says the new covenant is so much greater, it's incomparable to the old covenant. The old covenant is literally looked at like a dead donkey, and the new covenant is like you being in an F-22. Okay, which one do you want to take the battle with you, Peter? A dead donkey you drag along or hop in an F-22 Raptor? Man, I hope one day we get someone saved from the Navy or get them to come to this church or from the Air Force, and they say, Pastor, I'm going to take you up in one of those things. Because ever since Top Gun, I've wanted to be in one of those. I know I will puke, I know I will wet myself, and I know I will probably beg him to stop. But I have to go in one of those one day, you know, just go really fast. But, yeah, do you want a dead donkey to go to war or do you want an F-22 raptor? I mean, this is the difference between the old and the new. And so it's all because of Jesus. So no one take me out of context saying that we all become gods. And, you know, that's actually what Mormons believe. It's, you know, it's this idea that Jesus is a god and then we become gods. And now we have our own planets. And then in those planets, we're like God was to us on this planet. That's not nonsense. I'm just saying we have a better, a greater covenant than the old covenant. That's why John the Baptist is, is not even comparable to what we get now. And then we do greater and better in works than even Jesus because Jesus went to heaven to start the entire church. Jesus fed 5,000 twice, right? Like 5,000, I think the other time was 4,000. We have people that are Christians right now sending freight line ships with Tons of food to nations right now. Do you understand? Amen. But still, he made it out of that way. We got to get better in that way. Amen. Like he made it out of the basket. Multiply that. Okay. Now that you think I'm not blaspheming, but I'm rather challenging you to be great for God. Let's go back to the passage, please. The Bible then says, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 11, For the days of John the Baptist, for from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and the violent have been raiding it. The King James says it like this, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, but the violent take it by force. And so what it's saying is there are people persecuting the kingdom of God, there are people coming against the kingdom of God, but there are people fighting to get into the kingdom of God. So just as there's a force going against it, there's a force coming into it. So let me ask you a question. Are you more passionate about being a Christian than the world is about hating Christians? Are you more passionate about being pro-life than they are about being pro-choice? Are you more passionate about being pro-family and understanding genders and, and sexuality as one man and one woman in marriage than they are about pushing LGBTQIA? You see, we are to be violently as a passionate people invading the kingdom of God and then bringing it to the kingdom of darkness in which the gates of hell will not prevail. Remember, the gates of hell is where we fight and do our battles. One preacher said it like this. He said it like this. Most pastors want to be where the church bell is. I want to be one inch away from hell. That's what he said. So I want to be invading hell and, uh, and populating heaven, plundering hell and populating heaven. That's what's going on there. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. 
Let's go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. What's the last book of the Old Testament? What's the last book? Shout it out if you know it, please. Okay, Malachi. Go to Malachi chapter 5, almost the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament. This was before 400 years of silence. John the Baptist is the one who breaks the 400 years of silence, so he's very important. Let's see if God keeps his word. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord when it comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Do you remember last week when we talked about when Jesus said, you will not finish going to the disciples, you will not finish going until all, uh, in all the towns of Israel before I come back? Do you guys remember that? Some of you all just tired. How many remember that? Can I hear an amen? amen? Otherwise, we'll go back and read in. Okay? And remember I told you there's only really two ways to take that. That it's going to be the second coming or it had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you remember, I said it couldn't have to do with the second coming because the second coming hasn't happened yet, yet we've gone to all the towns of Israel. You guys remember that. Thank you for paying attention, Cynthia. I love you for that. Amen. Was that you who said that's right? Thank you. Okay, so I make sure I give credit to the right person. Okay. But if we say, well, he came back and they hadn't gone to all the towns of Israel, what event do we point to and say was Jesus coming back? Where, where did he come back? This gives us the indication of when he came back. It was, in fact, the destruction of Jerusalem because here it says he comes to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was judgment upon the Jewish religion, the Jewish people, and that's why they had their temple destroyed. From that point forward, Jewish people could no longer follow the Jewish religion according to their Bible. Out of the 613 laws that, Moses, uh, that God gave Moses, over a quarter of them have to do with their temple. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple split in two. That showed you now that, you, uh, excuse me, the temple veil split in two. That meant that they could now come into the Holy of Holies, not through the temple, but by being the temple through the Holy Spirit, okay? And so now Hebrews, written around 60 AD, about 10 years before the destruction of the temple, says that this old covenant is now passing away. It's about ready to go away, and it's going to be obsolete. And that happened. When the dreadful day of the Lord came upon them, just as in other times when God used other nations to judge Israel, when God used Rome to judge Israel and destroy the temple, that was his sign that the new covenant was official and that now Jews, like Gentiles, had to become Christians to be right with God. Now, does he still promise the Jewish people the land and things that they can receive? Absolutely. But Jews without Christ, from that point forward, will die and go to hell. Jews must have Christ like you have Christ. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. So go back to Matthew. This is all very important. Jesus is not just spouting Old Testament scripture to make you think he's cute, okay? He's not like some of you who share memes who have no idea where that passage came from, you know? I know the purposes and plans I have for you. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to share that. You know what the purpose and plan for Jeremiah was? To preach the gospel and be thrown into a pit. Okay? So be careful about what you're sharing if you don't understand the context. Okay? So the context of Jesus saying, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. What does that mean? Elijah has come. Dreadful day of the Lord is coming. That's why in Matthew 24, Jesus starts prophesying, these walls, boys, of the temple, they're all going down. And when it happens, you better run fast and get out of Dodge. He tells them what to do even at that point. This is serious. He's saying, your, your Elijah, your prophet has come. And now the dreadful day of the Lord is following right behind him. Now look at what he says. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear. Somebody say, I'm listening. Amen. We're listening to the word. To what can I compare this generation? He's going to tell them why they're going to deserve their judgment. They are like children sitting in marketplaces and calling out to the others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. 
For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. They say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I want you to be honest with me. How many of you understand that passage? If I was to ask you what that means about the children calling out, one asking for a happy song, another time they're asking for a sad song. If I was to ask you what that means, how many of you would be able to explain that to me? Raise your hands, please. Not very many, right? It's a little bit confusing, isn't it? It makes a tremendous point. Let me make it for you very clear because the Bible says right before he said that, listen, listen, right? He's saying, you got to listen to this. This is a big point. Imagine you go downtown. You see the guys playing the buckets. You ever see those guys playing the buckets? Okay. They play the buckets. They play a happy song. Let's say people are walking by and they go, you're too loud. You're playing too much of a happy song. I don't want to hear it. Now play me a sad song. And let's say they play the buckets all sad. Now somebody else walks by and go, that's too sad. I don't like hearing the sad song. Play me the happy song. And then now what do they say? I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I sent John the Baptist to you super serious. He was all business. When you went to hear him preach, he was not playing around. He was not telling you jokes. He wasn't hanging out with your kids and going to your birthday parties. He was very serious with you, and he looked crazy because he ate wild locusts and honey and wore camel's hair. And y'all didn't like that. You thought he was too serious. When you came to hear him, you were like, man, I wish you would lighten up a little bit, hang out, have some wine at the party with us. And then Jesus said, but I came, and now I'm having fun with you. I'm making gallons of wine at the party. I'm hanging out in the Pharisee's house. I'm hanging out with prostitutes and sinners. And then now you're saying I'm a drunker and I'm a, I'm a glutton. Basically, we were damned if we did and damned if we don't. You see, I have to start with a better example now. Sometimes in my marriage, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Let's take out the word damned because none of us are going to hell. Let's put it like this. I'm, 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 uh, I'm persecuted if I do and I'm persecuted if I don't because my wife will say to me, you know what, I just need you to be with me right now. Just be with me. And then I'll come and hold her and hug her. And she'll be like, I need my space right now. I need my space right now. And then I'll walk away. And she'll be like, what are you doing? I, need, I told you to come be with me right now. And I'm like, I tried to be with you, you know, but you told me you wanted your space. I, I'm judged if I do and I'm judged if I don't. Come on, can I get an amen if anybody's been in a marriage relationship like that? And oftentimes it's the same way in church. There were two situations that happened in my life. A pastor taught me this lesson, and I'll never forget it. Two situations. One, we had a great elder in our church, great leader, but he went through some very tough times with his family, and he basically said to me, Pastor, just back off some of the responsibility. Give me some space. Let me just hang out around the church. I don't want to do all of those things. And I was like, amen, brother. You, you're, you're an elder. Uh, you know, go to the life group, but don't feel like you have to teach it. You know, come to the church, but don't feel like you have to come to the altars. Do whatever you want. Eventually, he led the, left the church because he said, you made me feel like I wasn't a part of the church anymore, and I wasn't able to do anything, and you told me to sit back and just watch everybody. And I'm like, brother, it was your idea. You remember this, right? You remember? You don't remember. Okay, because I wanted you, you know this person. You remember. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. Then at the very same time, there was a young man who was engaged. Uh, you know, he was excited about this relationship, and she either cheated on him, I can't remember exactly, or just broke his heart by leaving, uh, breaking up and starting a new relationship. So I don't know if it was a cheating involved, but it was basically, you know, her going to another man, and they were engaged, Okay. And I remember just, he was sitting at my, my kitchen counter, tears coming down his face because I remember it, and them dropping to the kitchen counter. Like I remember little puddles of tears. And I said, brother, what can I do for you? And he's just like, man, I just don't want to think about it. I just want to do things for God. I just, I got to get past this. So I said, okay, brother, we're going to put you in the ministry. We're not going to hold back anything because he was basically our youth director. I said, okay, we're not going to sit you down. We're going to have you plow through this. We're going to keep your mind occupied. He leaves the church. All they did was burn me out. They didn't make time for me to grieve over this loss. And I remember calling my pastor. I was like, Pastor, what is going on with these people? I used to have perfectly brown hair before I started pastoring. Just look at this now. By God's grace, I love pastoring you, but look at what has happened. Uh, I said, Pastor, what is going on? 
And he, I told him the whole story. He said, brother, there's just some people you say A, they say B. You say B, they say A. And that's what was going on with this culture. They said, oh, we want it serious. When they had it serious, they didn't want it. We want it to be fellowshipping, hanging out. Oh, no, we don't want that. Really what it was, they didn't want the word of God anyway it came. Amen? Let's not be like them. Verse 20. Verse 20 teaches us how we can now come to Jesus. Amen. How many want to come to Jesus today? Because we don't want to be like these guys. Look at this. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not what? Repent. See, that's not how we're supposed to come to Jesus, going, Jesus, you didn't give me enough proof. I have literally heard atheists say this. When people ask them in the debates, they go, excuse me, Mr. Atheist, what would you say if God was real and you meet him on judgment day? You know what they'll say? I've heard people say, I didn't have enough proof to believe in you. Don't send me to hell. You didn't do a good enough job. It's your fault. You see, I've heard them be that sassy. No, 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 no. You don't get away with that here. Don't come to God with your pride. Come to him with your repentance. Maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe there's something wrong with the way you're thinking to why this doesn't make sense, okay? So sometimes people also say, Jesus only rebuked the religious people. He, he was always, like, really nice to everybody else. No, he was, he was nice to everybody, including religious people like Nicodemus, but he was also rebuking to everybody like Nicodemus and the woman called in adultery because he told her, go and sin no more. So listen here. It's not just religious or it's not just hypocrites. It's the whole town she begins to rebuke, including sweet little grandmas in that town, to the religious in that town, to the wild and out. Uh, cousin Flacco in that town, you know, Cousin Vinny, you know, all of them get condemned here. Watch. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these were Old Testament cities that got judged, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, you think you're going to be lifted to the heavens? No, you're going down to hell. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, Jesus preaching like that? Yes, that's Jesus. Jesus is like, you think New York City, you're so awesome, you build your building so high, you're going to hell. You think you're so awesome, all you smart people, you're going to hell. God is so clear that there's a heaven and there is a hell. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, they would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Why is that going to be so much harder? Because they were given more. What do you think God's going to say on the day of judgment to us? You guys had the Bible. You had churches on every corner. You had pastors that were awesome, pastors that loved you, that cared for you, and you still didn't listen. There will be no excuse on that day. Now look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Isn't that awesome? God is saying you have to humble yourself like a child if you want to get it. And he says, I thank you that you made it that way. You want to see a scripture about the divinity of Christ? Here it is. All things have been committed to me by my Father. How many things does Jesus have from the Father? All things. If the Father is all-powerful and Jesus has all power that the Father has, what does that mean Jesus is? All-powerful. It means he's God, right? You can't have everything of God unless you're God. Now, do we worship two gods? No, we worship one God and three persons. But they equally share the power. They equally share the knowledge. Because if the Father has all knowledge and he's omniscient and the Son has all the, Father, all the Father's knowledge, then what does that mean about the Son? He is what? Omniscient, all-knowing. And if the Father can be all places at all times in acting in history, sustaining the universe, what does that mean about Jesus? That he's also in all places and all times omnipresent. Isn't that just amazing? All things have been committed to me by my Father. Now watch this next one right here. 
This might make your Hindu neighbor a little mad, your Buddhist neighbor a little bit upset. They they might feel like you're judging them, but you've got to be honest and tell them what the God of heaven and earth said because he's their God, whether they acknowledge it or not. They're going to stand before him on judgment day. Listen to what it says because we love the I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's John. But listen to what he says in Matthew. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Woo! Come on, somebody. No one can know God except from Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that knows him entirely. The Father God. As the Son of God, he knows him entirely. And how do we get to share in that relationship? By the Holy Spirit of God. That's why it ends. That's why Matthew will end his gospel with Jesus' words. Go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's not many gods. It doesn't say in the names, plural, of many gods. There's only one God with one name, Yahweh, Jehovah of the Old Testament, the great I am that I am. And he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus stands on that foundation and says, you cities, you're going to hell because you have have rejected me. You wanted it serious. We gave you serious. You wanted it laughing and joking. We gave that to you. And now you'll be held accountable for it. And just in case you don't understand, no one knows God but me. And no one knows me but God. And no one will ever know God except if I give them the right to know him. That's my Jesus. Okay? That's not politically correct. That's biblically correct. And I say that to every Muslim, to every Buddhist, to every atheist, to every world religion out there. Come to know Jesus and you will know the Father. Amen. Can I get Rachel to come with soft music now? How many are ready for the soft music, mothers? Come on. Because what do we need in this life? We need the peace of Jesus now, don't we? Because when we are like John the Baptist preaching the gospel, what can happen to us? We can suffer in this world. And if towns can be judged, if entire regions can be judged, then what's going to happen to us as individuals if we reject him? We'll be judged. But now do we carry this burden of Christianity as our religion and just walk around going, oh, woe is me, I'm suffering, nobody likes me, I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. No, Jesus takes a breath almost, as you can see in the passage here. He has this moment to catch his breath and to speak back to the people. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I just explain it to you? Because most of us don't know anything about yokes and an ox carrying this. But a yoke is that, that kind of shape thing that one can go under here and another one can go under there. It's made out of wood. And they would pull the plow or they would pull the cart. And generally, as you study this out in history, they would always have the strongest with the weakest so that the weakest doesn't just get cast to the side and that the strongest doesn't have to always be by themselves. But hopefully the young, weaker one will grow up to be stronger, you know, and then they'll keep switching them out. And so what the Bible is teaching us here is that Jesus is bearing the yoke. And he's telling us, take off yours. Take off yours with the devil and going in a ditch and being over here all busted and disgusted and come to me. And take on mine, and mine will be light for you. Mine will be easy. Why is that? Because he takes the pain. He takes the anxiety. He carries the doubts. So can I apply this first to our mothers today? Mothers, every mother, look up at me, please. Do you ever feel, mothers, like you're carrying the burden of your families all by yourself? I know I watch my wife, and I'm there to help. But there are things I cannot do, and I watch her do, and I see what it takes out of her. Can I tell you that there is someone willing to carry the burden of motherhood with you? The one to carry that heart that you have. 
even in jail, the father won't come see the child if he's done enough bad things. You know, he crossed the line. Father won't go. Even the kids won't go. But who always will go? It's the mother. The mother won't give up. And so mothers, you carry that emotional pain in life. But the Bible says that you shouldn't carry it alone. You should let God carry it with you because his load is easy and his burden is light. Is it any wonder then, mothers, please get this before you go, that so many mothers deal with depression, so many mothers deal with sleeplessness, so many mothers deal with being overstressed and overweight and all of these things that come along with that. The Bible is saying that's not our way. Our way is to come to God and ask him to carry our burdens. And fathers, for you as well, obviously we'll have Father's Day, but fathers, let Jesus carry your burden. Children, let Jesus carry your burden. I can't even imagine what it's like to be a teenager in this culture. I mean, could you imagine it, those of us who grew up in a different time? I mean, they are literally telling them to question their own gender. Could you imagine that? I mean, I'm trying to block this all from my kids. You know, don't look at the TV in Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, don't watch this cartoon because this one is way too effeminate. You know, don't look at this. Don't, and I'm just, you know, I'm like the guy at the dam trying to plug every hole. And you know what God says to me, Joe? Take rest in me. I'll carry your son's burden. I'll carry your children's burden. I can hear Jesus saying to me, you're not the first one to grow up in a, a horrible culture. Daniel grew up in Babylon and I kept him. I'll keep your children. Come on, somebody. We need to believe that there's a God that knows every yoke, every pain. And not just what we face in culture, but as we were talking about before, those things of John the Baptist, the emotional pain of losing people. I have watched pastors bury their children, some from suicide. I mean, you think because you're a pastor and you have more answers in the Bible, that takes away the pain? But you know what those pastors have done? They come with the, 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 the strength of the Lord and let the Lord carry that burden. My mother buried my sister, her daughter, and I watched her let Jesus carry her burdens. Can I encourage you here today? If you're going through anything emotional, anything that's stressing you out, let Jesus carry your burden. Financial, relational, physical, even governmental. Some of you are carrying the burden to get your green card. Hallelujah. Let's keep it real in this church. Amen. How many know that there's some real tough things going on with immigration right now? Y'all quiet up in this church. Y'all acting like I'm preaching to an Anglo church in the suburbs right now. You acting like you don't have relatives right now suffering from immigration. Come on, don't just, don't just put it on Facebook and don't be mad because I'm a gringo talking about it. But how many of you are facing immigration issues with your friends or family? We have them in this church. Governmental. You feel oppressed. We don't have to agree on the politics right now. What we can agree with is God understands why you left that country. God understands what you're trying to do in this country, and he will carry your burden. And even if we disagree politically on how to go about it, I can pray for you because I want the best for you. Amen? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Father, can we just pray in closing right now? Father, carry our burdens. Before even the altar workers come, can I just ask you where you're seated right now to ask Jesus to carry your burdens? What are you caring about today that you need Jesus to carry for you and with you? What are you caring about today? What's important to you? What's on your mind? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, even just while I'm praying and talking to us right now, would you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Because you can't ask him to carry your burdens for life unless you've asked him to carry the burdens of your sin. And if you are born again today and you have trusted him to carry the burden of your sin, will you trust him to carry the burdens of your problems? A few moments right now, those asking Jesus into their heart, all you have to do is say, Father, I believe in your son Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sins by the blood of his cross. Send your Holy Spirit into my life to make me new. I will live for you all the days of my life. If that's you, keep praying that for the rest of us right now. Come on, do you, do you believe that Jesus can carry the burdens of life? 
We'll call up the altar workers and band in just a moment to dismiss in a group prayer. But right now, what is what do you care about? What is weighing on your heart today? Every day of your life, you make a choice. Do you do it with Jesus or do you do it on your own? I know it sounds hard to hear this, but as you're praying, I want to be honest with you as your pastor. When I talk to many of you in your times of discouragement, it doesn't mean you've done something wrong to deserve the problem. Hear me on this. But I see oftentimes during your discouragement that the reason why it feels so heavy is because you're not letting God carry. I'm not saying the problem is your fault. Please hear me. But I'm saying as your pastor, oftentimes I see you carrying the heaviness when God never asked you to carry it. I'm just going to give a few examples while we're praying right now because I feel the Lord leading me right now for people to release burdens to the Lord. Some of you carry the burden of your lost loved one. Oh, I wish they were here to see this. Oh, I wish they would have been here to see this. And, and and, And you know that they would not want you to be sad over that. But you let that get into your mind. Oh, the wedding's not going to be the same because grandma's not going to, you know, mom's not going to be there. Oh, you know, the baptism, that's not going to be the same because grandma's, and, and, it's, and it sounds noble. I get it, and there's a part of you that wishes for that. That's fine. But there are some of you, you carry that burden, and if they were looking down from heaven and could talk to you, they would say, don't worry about it. I know it's fine. I'll see them when they get up here. We'll tell all the stories. You see, you got to let go of that burden. Some of you right now, you have the burden similar to what I had. You want to go so fast in life that you let your ambition pull you down and you're not content with what you have. And you're just missing it. Every day there's a a flower to smell. Every day there's a walk to take with your loved one. Every day there's a poem to read. Every day there's a song to sing, but you're not getting it because you're too busy. And you think if you're not busy, you're not providing, you're not, you're not going to accomplish your dreams. And what you're not realizing is dreams come true one day at a time. You're not living. Let Jesus give you life again. Let him carry that burden. One more before we end this time of prayer. If that's speaking to you, come on, just release it now. I want to be successful too, but I'm not going to trade walks at the park because I have to get on another phone call to make people join the church or whatever. i got to trust God at some point with this burden. And lastly, if you're here today and, and things are just not working out with you financially and you just you say, I work hard, I tithe, and it's still not coming through, and, and you're just carrying that burden so heavy on yourself, listen to me. Trust God. If you need help with finances, there's some great people in this church, elders, that could possibly show you a budget or something you don't even realize you can do. But I've seen so many people, like the Bible says, the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil. I've seen so many people quit serving God because they have to do this thing on their job or, or they feel like they just you know, can't make ends meet unless they miss the life group. And they put money in a place where God never intended it to be. Wouldn't you be happier living in a one-bedroom apartment with a family of four, taking the bus, and knowing you guys all love God and went to church like your grandparents did, than for you to have everything you have now, the vacation, Disney World, the three cars, and all this debt and all of this anxiety? Would you trust God with your finances, in other words? Those three groups I just wanted to pray for. Oh, a few more moments in his presence. Band and altar worker, would you come? Altar workers, we'll stand in just a moment. But just where you're at, I just felt like some just needed to release burdens today. If you have any needs, we'll stand up in just a moment and get ready to dismiss. These prayer workers will be up here to pray for you. Jesus is still healing. Jesus is still setting free. Jesus is still doing amazing things. If you believe it, can I hear an Amen. Amen. Would you stand up to your feet as we give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Come on, let's give God a hand clap of praise. Somebody shout hallelujah if you believe it. Hallelujah. Glory. Amen. We are going to to dismiss this service and start our second service as we do. If you need any prayer, come on up. If you need to know more about our church, let's do that. Otherwise, we ask you to have a blessed day. Take care of your mamas. And then Juan Riasco's got a camera to do some portraits with your families. Amen. God bless you as you go. Give it up for Jesus one more time. We love you.
Have a great day. If you need prayer, come on up.